Good evening, everyone. As Stu indicated, this is the last in the series of uh, Jesus Is. You might be glad about that, or maybe there's other things. I know some other churches just did it for four weeks. We seem to have been going forever, which is good. I, I haven't got a problem with that. Although we are talking tonight about the end time, so I don't know if you can actually follow that with anything else. So why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that it was read for us and as we listened, we uh, gleaned some things from you. Help us to dig into it deeper. Find out more about you and what you would have us do. For Jesus' sake, amen. Uh, Jesus is your mum's thing. Well, there's your mum doing a thing. And uh, is that true for you? Is your mum someone who reads the Bible and models faith to you? I think for many of us in the church, that's, that's the way it was. Uh, I was brought up in a Christian family and my mum read the Bible. Uh, she made us go to Sunday school, but she just didn't pack us off. She went to church as well at the same time and then picked us up. And uh, there was always a Bible next to a bed. Uh, and I'm very thankful that at the age of 14 I could actually own that faith for myself. But it was there right from the start. I, I didn't know what it meant not to have a knowledge of God. So Jesus, as your mum's saying, is a very important thing if, if parents are actually modelling to their children something significant about the life of Christ in their own lives. Remember Paul's friend Timothy? Uh, Paul writes to him and says, Look, uh, I'm so thankful that you have been nurtured by your grandmother and by your mother and they fanned into flame the gift that God has given you so that you can go and reach out to others. So mothers are great. It's wonderful when we can look at our mums and say thank you for the things that they've done. Uh, rather than just muttering lifeless liturgies to us at the end of the day and saying a few our fathers or whatever prayers they, they say that will send us to sleep, they actually model for us uh, what being a Christian looks like. But Jesus is your mum's thing, I think, has got a more cynical aspect to it. I think it's someone from a younger generation saying, well, that's your thing, but it's not my thing. What I'd like to do tonight is to look at that generation that's saying this, try to work out why they're saying it and what we can do to help them find some answers. It's really saying Christianity is old-fashioned. It's out of date. It's not in step with community norms. We've seen that of late, haven't we? We felt uh, isolated in many respects. Where Before we, we thought that the community agreed with us. Now we're saying, well, maybe times have changed fairly dramatically. Well, let me spend a moment looking at this group. Uh, here they are, Generation Y. Some call them the Millennials. If you were born in the age between the early 80s and the early 2000s, you fit into that group. I'll refer to them as Millennials or Young'uns in this talk. Now, you, you, might, you, might, be in that, you might be in that group, but our church is not full of them, is it? We, we, that's the group we miss out on. We've got lots of kids, got lots of people in that uh, Gen X group and baby boomers, a few of them, like me. But we, we seem to be missing out on this group. Why? Well, firstly, let me say that they grew up in an age where there was an increasing familiarity with communication and digital technology. So that made us, the baby boomers, feel out of touch with them already. We just didn't know what they were talking about. And we had to relearn lots of things in these areas. They too were often children of parents where there was an increasing divorce rate, where the sense of community was not always found in the home. 
and so they try to find it elsewhere in clubs and groups and sporting uh, groups and so on. Um, work was no longer a place where you spent most of your life, even though you didn't like work. You didn't say, I worked for 40 years and I hated every minute. Work was now something you had to enjoy and so you changed jobs. You kept on finding work that was meaningful for you and enjoyable. There's also a sense of entitlement with this group. They felt as though the world owed them something and anything that restricted their decisions and lifestyle, like organised religion, if that got in the way of your thinking, then you ditched it. It was foreign to you. Millennials are the product of moral relativism, a term, I guess, which means there are no absolute goods and bads in their view. It all depends on the circumstances. So you can't say something is always right and something is always wrong. You always have to look at the circumstance to work out for yourself whether it's right or wrong, which leads to a very messy world if you're going to operate under that system. Uh, there are no ethical norms that bind everyone together. And there's no sense that uh, one faith claim outranks another. They're all subjective preferences. So you can be a Buddhist, I can be a Christian, you can be an atheist and we'll all get on well together. No one's right, no one's wrong. This generation valued relationships very much, but often they threw out those things that the older generation uh, worked on, things like commitment and loyalty and truth-speaking. They threw that out and wondered why relationships failed. They were encouraged at school and uni to ask questions but didn't like dogmatic answers. And having been a teacher and teaching millennials for some time, I remember uh, asking uh, questions and when the answers came and they didn't like my answers to their answers, uh, we had quite a few arguments in class. Uh, I was labelled intolerant and arrogant and all I was doing was stating what I thought I believed. New God tolerance often dictated their beliefs and actions. And again, we've seen that in the recent debate about uh, gay marriage. They often said, because my truth is mine, you can't question my behaviour or my belief. That's what I believe in. You can't tell me what I should do and how I should think. They grew up in an age of militant secularism and pop atheism, where it was cool to be an atheist and to get on the bandwagon. And if you didn't agree with them, you are out of touch, you weren't you're irrelevant to their lives. Engaging in religion, well, that was your mum's thing. Um, your dad probably was worshipping at Bunnings if he was still around at all. I found this little sign in a shop in Yamba in northern New South Wales about two weeks ago. I was visiting a daughter who lives up there and I'd been thinking about this sermon and this fitted in perfectly. Life is a great big canvas and you should throw all the paint on it you can. I guess that's the philosophy of millennials. Life is a big canvas. If, you, if you're in that age group, you probably, when you're at school, you, in English you talked about journeys. Do you remember that? You had to write about journeys and, yeah, it rings, rings true. Yeah, well, this is, this is where it comes from, this, this, this idea that life is before you and it's a journey, and as you go, you're just adding things to that journey. Now, often uh, millennials will do that in the form of tattoos. Um, I've got nothing against tattoos. I nearly got one once, but then I sobered up. No, that's not, tr <laughs> that's not true. I shouldn't say that in church. Uh, 
but you can read, you can read people's lives with tattoos often, can't you? You can see um, who their girlfriends are and boyfriends and who they've crossed out and the name of their children and so on. Um, it's all about my identity, myself, uh, passing through time and space and me filling in the blanks on the canvas. Now, the, the problem here is, and this is, I think, the big problem, is that um, they want to write their own story to the end. They don't want anyone else to write the story. But the problem with that is that when death comes, they can't write the story. Someone or something else writes the story for them. And so death is a full stop. If there's nothing beyond death, then that's where my story ends. And that's very unsatisfying to someone in that age group. It makes any attempt to write a meaningful script uh, fairly pointless. You only have to go to a young person's funeral to see how painful it is. Uh, when people get up and tell funny stories about that person and imagine their friend looking down from the stars, but the reality is still a full stop. That's where it ends. There's nothing else. Well, not only does death make a mockery of us trying to write the story for ourselves and fill in the canvas, so too does Jesus' second coming and the judgment he brings with him. Christians believe that Jesus calls us to follow him, not just in life, but all the way to the cross. As Annabelle read that first reading, I hope you, you understood what was being read there. It means giving up telling our own story and letting it be told by Jesus. Let me show you that uh, passage that uh, Annabelle read for us, uh, just a little bit of it. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? To deny yourself in this context is not giving up chocolate, is it, or uh, fatty food for a while. It's giving up the right to run our lives our own way, which strikes at the very heart of our existence. That's the one thing we, we want to do. The one thing we crave for and value and protect is that right to make ultimate decisions. And yet Jesus says, give it up. And more than that, he says, now, take up your cross and follow me. To those who were Jesus' contemporaries, taking up a cross only meant one thing. It was a one-way trip. You weren't coming back. As Jesus talks to the crowd here, they understood that for taking up a cross would mean a person would be stripped and bared naked, humbled, ridiculed, shamed. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I guess you can expect some of those things because it reduces us to a place where we're ready to receive God's grace. We say we can't run our lives our own way. Somebody else has to step in and do that for us. It means choosing to do what Jesus wants rather than what we want. It's what Abraham did. Abraham heard God. He spoke to him. And God said, I want you to go and search for a land. Abraham didn't have a map. He just trusted in the promises and the power of God to get him there. Paul did it. He, did, he put it like this. I consider my life worth nothing to me 
if only I may finish the race. There's no blank canvas here for Paul, is there? He's talking about Jesus running the race and he knows where he's going. Someone once said, and I don't know who it was, but it's pretty wise, I think, if you find that you have everything you want by life's end, you will not want anything you have. To those who say, Jesus is my mum's thing, I'd say to you, if you haven't lost your life for him, you'll never have real and satisfying fulfilment. You'll never know what real life is about. And what happens when Jesus returns and when you stand before him? You see, history is not just a blank canvas either. History is Jesus' story. He made the world, he came into it, he lived in it, and he'll return to end history and to wind it all up. That's the great Christian hope. The world will not go on forever. It's not just going to peter out. It's not just going to explode with an asteroid. Jesus will come again, this time not to suffer but to reign. And his coming will settle the future destiny of all people. His aim is not to encourage us in these uh, words from uh, Matthew to look at dates and times and try to work out when the millennium is going to be or the rapture or whatever. That's not what Jesus is on about in, in these chapters from Matthew chapter 24. He wants us to fix our eyes on the king and the reign that's coming with him. Very briefly, I just want to take us through chapter 24 and see what we can glean from, from this particular chapter. Uh, Jesus actually speaks in chapter 24 and 25 about the, uh, the second coming and what it means to be ready. But we'll just have a, a glimpse at chapter 24. Firstly, I want to say that the return of Jesus will be personal. It's not some alien force that's going to meet us, someone that we don't know or won't recognise, who has no knowledge of us. Rather, we'll meet someone who's been with us, who's been one of us, who's shared our existence and shows us what it means to be truly human. Here's someone who's filled in the canvas in exactly the way it's supposed to be. And we can look at Jesus and see what we were to become. Secondly, Jesus' return will bring restoration. Have a look at verses 6 to 8 for a minute, will you, of chapter 24. If you've got your Bibles there, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but you might like to have a look there. Uh, Jesus says, You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. The Jewish expectation was that of a day of the Lord would come and, and the end would come with that. And Jesus takes up that language in these chapters and he speaks of cosmic disasters. He speaks of social disasters like uh, caused by earthquakes and famines. He speaks of moral disasters and the growth of evil and the loss of love. But we have a great hope in all this. If you go down to verse 29, it says, Immediately after the distress of these days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's a terrible picture, isn't it? But then, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. 
They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Here's the new and wonderful hope that we have. It's dawned through the coming of Jesus and he brings restoration, social, cosmic restoration, personal and moral. There'll be a new creation, a new world in which we live physically, in which only goodness dwells. And that's a great hope set before us. So Jesus' return brings restoration. It also spells judgment. If you uh, have a look at uh, verses 40 and 41 for a minute. Uh, this was read to us. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Some will be taken, some will be left. There will be goats and sheep. There will be a scattering. There will be, be working out. There will be no middle position. You're either there or you're there. What was hidden in our hearts will emerge in that clear light of day. It won't be a matter of goodness and degrees of goodness. It'll be rather whether we run to Jesus or whether we shirk and hide in fear. Jesus' coming brings that to us. And of course, the return of Jesus will bring judgment as he tells us where we will go. We're also told the turn of Jesus will be decisive as well as unexpected. Remember what he wrote about Noah here? Um, if we go to verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And according to the New Testament, Noah was a preacher of righteousness right through to the end. It took him a hundred years to build the ark and he answered all their questions as they asked, why are you doing this? He told them, but they didn't believe him. And when the end came, they couldn't believe it themselves. So the judgment will be effective. One minute, business as usual. The next minute, all the shops are shut. Like lightning flashing across the sky, the nature of our existence will change in an instant and will be forever with the Lord. So what are we to do? How are we to act? Well, in the light of all this, and this verse comes right in the middle of the section, doesn't it? Verse 42, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know that what day our Lord will come. We're not to watch like uh, astronomers looking at the sky for signs. We're not to watch like security guards looking at a camera. We're to watch like lovers who've been apart for a while, who are waiting to see each other again. And in some ways it's a fairly mundane watching. We're just to get about our normal business. Have a look at the parable there that Kate read for us before. It begins in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will be put in charge of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. 
you will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master is looking for servants he can rely on. He's looking for servants who will act in exactly the same way whether he's there or whether he's not. They're just going to go about their business. For some, the master's delay breeds bad behaviour and the outcome, as you see, is disastrous. For others, I think Paul sums it up really well. It'll be like this. He, he writes to Titus and he says these words. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Being watchful means going about our normal Christian business, keeping on doing the things we should, saying no to the bad and trying to exceed in the good, saying no to that inordinate longing for power and possessions and pleasure and putting that in perspective saying yes to self-control and to honesty and integrity in dealing with others and reverence and respect when we deal with God as we wait for the blessed hope and the appearance of Jesus himself. Well, I'm told, but I don't know if this is true, that the only thing millennials will commit to are Apple products might be a bit of a lie. But how do we ask them to commit their lives to Jesus? If they reject everything that we say we can give you, how, how do we get those who say, well, Jesus is your mum's thing, to actually connect to Jesus? What are we to do? Well, I think if they come through our doors, we need to do what we're doing. They need to see a dynamic church. They need to see a church with a mission and a passion for doing things and, and the, the empowerment of people to do those things within the church. If you've been here for a while, you'll know that this church is not a one-man band. Stuart shares the load and he empowers us to do those things and he always points to the mission statement before us of serving the community and bringing the gospel to the wider area in our local, uh, in our local um, area here. Um, we, we need to engage millennials in a vision. We also need to engage them in, in telling them that there's more to life than just what they're doing right now. We need to talk about the future in terms of presenting marriage seminars and what it's like to move into middle age and to old age and what it means to actually save for something. So we, we, we help people cope with those sorts of things. We need to help them develop their story so that the end is the goal that Paul has. Millennials have grown up with online personas and cyberbullying and what an opportunity we have to teach this generation that a true identity is found in Jesus, not just in a false identity created online to impress people. At the end of the day, those who say Christianity is my mum's thing are people just like us, made in the image of God, in desperate need of a saviour. Millennials crave relationship 
and people who invest their lives in their future. Real people who actually care, not just say they care. I hope that's you and I hope that's me. I hope we are those who are willing to go out of our comfort zone to invest ourselves in others so that Jesus will become their thing as well, not just ours. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, Jesus' second coming is something we can look forward to and yet it scares us because we know there are those that we love who do not know you yet. Might that encourage us to speak the word of truth to them and help them through the power of your spirit to understand it. Amen. Now, we do have time for questions. So if you've got any questions, now's your chance to ask one or two. G'day. Hi, Steve. Um, I know you've been around for some time, so uh, this question sort of dates on that. Um, how did you deal in your life with the previous millennials, so to speak? So like, this isn't a new thing. No, no, no. So let's go back, say, 20, 30 years hmm. in that scope of things, how did that generation deal with their millennials coming up? That's a hard one. Uh, I, I can only talk from experience. I, I was teaching for about 26 years, so I can go back 20 years. I, rem I remember a class I had where when I used to give dogmatic answers, there was just a front came up. There was just no, there was no chance of us actually engaging in conversation. So I took it upon myself to pray for those kids and to pray that I would actually get to know each of them personally over the next year. Uh, we, we often left the work that was set and, uh, and when they came to um, writing reports, I, I had to make it up because we hadn't actually done the work. But I got to know them and by the end of the time, I had them for two years, we reached a point where some of them had committed their life to Jesus and they told me it was because they'd actually seen me being real with them. Hmm. And I was just, I was overcome by that. And uh, I had a farewell a couple, uh, last year, and one of the pictures at my farewell was someone who'd taken a picture of me with this class. I didn't even know it had been taken. I know one had been taken before where they'd actually distorted the picture and put it on Facebook, but I didn't know this picture had been taken of me teaching the class. So for me, that was a real breakthrough, and I think that's the breakthrough in every generation. You've just got to be there for people and earn the right to speak to them, and then, then they'll listen. That's good. Thanks. Um, we have a, a sign over here that says, we need to connect and care before we communicate, and I'd, I'd encourage you, I think there's something in that, that goes along that line. Uh, are there other questions? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there is one. Oh, that was so close. A second later, and it would have been. Well, okay. it's kind of not a question to you. It's um, actually to the millennials in our... Hmm. I'd really like to hear from them. Does this ring true? Like, I'm not a millennial, so I don't know. I'm an oldie. Like, what, what would you guys, how would you respond to this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. It's great. Okay. <laughs> um, it rings true, particularly at university, I find. Um, everything that, like, your teacher tells you 
can be argued. <laughs> so I found the whole description at the beginning is very, very true for me. Um, what I've started to like try and focus on doing is exactly as Stuart said, care and connect first, because then the rest, like God does the rest of the work, people can see there's an obvious difference. Yeah, people notice that there's something different about you, that you're not like going out and etc. And then they ask you like, why? Why are you so like nice to people all the time or something like that? But I think um, <laughs> with <laughs> Henry, it's with, millennial speak. It's okay. Um, it being your mum's thing, I don't think I've ever heard someone say that to me explicitly. Um, especially in a context where like young people don't talk about God or faith. Mm. Um, and for a lot of people, it's not their mum's thing. So, mm. yeah. I think actually it's a generation, it's the next generation back. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> I suppose just one thing I'd add is, um, just going off what Jackie said then, is that the situation's not the same for everyone. So, and as you say, Stuart, is um, getting to know people is, the, is probably the first step, of course, I think. You know, you'd be, you'd be Facebook friends with someone, but, you know, mm. I could say that I reckon there'd be about 30 people on my Facebook I would, probably haven't even met once, maybe, mm. or know of them. So, um, you know, and I suppose, like, everyone's, everyone's different, so you get, them, you get to know someone, people really appreciate that. And, um, you know, I'm pretty old school, so I don't really, I'm not really into all the tech sort of stuff, so I don't <laughs> get it. But so yeah, I, I suppose yeah. What I want to say is everyone's different. So getting to know people, I think definitely our generation have lacked people actually getting to know them yeah. properly. <laughs> so before, when you're like uh, being atheist is seen as cool kind of thing, I think that's definitely a thing. Like I got an Anglican school, but I say majority atheist, mm. and being Christian is standing out, yeah. even at an Anglican school, and um, yeah. Definitely stands out, and what was I going to say now? There's something like that. Hmm. <laughs> that. That was helpful. Yeah. In fact, it's probably just scary for the rest of us. Um, it's yeah. I mean, that, if that's if that's the case, and and I think that sounds like it's a widespread thing. Yeah, you got it back. So then you'll hear a lot of people, their families are Christian, and they say, "Oh, I'm a Christian too." But really, you don't see that, that they're a Christian at all. They just, it's a lot of, oh, I'm a Christian, by the way. But really, you don't, yeah. the actions don't reflect it at all. So, yeah. I think that's, um, Thanks. I think that's a huge, a huge thing, isn't it? And um, I think that's all generations. And that's why, apparently, the census still tells us 55% of Australians reckon they're Christians. And 8% are in churches on a weekend. There's got to be some disjunction there between those two things. Um, okay, that's great. Incidentally, uh, millennials, we love having you here. Um, speak up. Uh, we're really delighted uh, to have what you've got to say part of our service. So, Stu, thanks for taking us to that place. Um, Stu's really helped us tonight. Um, he said to us to, to wait well uh, and to look for Jesus' coming and to connect our story with Jesus so we have a timeline that's bigger than the next upgrade cycle to your phone.